0: Hey, good evening, good morning, wherever you're watching, however you're watching. Thank you so much for joining me for Redeemer Live. Now, with the restrictions being loosened, at least here in Arizona, I hope you're not watching this bunker down with just your family. I hope you're watching with friends or your growth group or maybe multiple growth groups. Maybe you've brought some food in for breakfast or or barbecued for dinner, and then you're watching this together. I, I hope that's what you're doing. And if you aren't doing that, I hope you're able to do that coming up soon. Becky, Ryan, if you're watching, notice, hey, no plaid. No plaid, just wanted you to see that. Now, seriously though, Wednesday night, I know you heard about it, but I want you to hear it again. Wednesday night, important message, especially if you are a part of Redeemer. I'm going to talk about the strategy for regathering. And so you don't want to miss that this Wednesday at 7 p.m. L- bottom line, we, are, we cannot let the pandemic stop learning God's word or loving each other, right? And so we, we've got to do both. And so we will continue to do both. Now, Grab your Bibles and open to Titus chapter 3. That's Titus chapter 3, page 1100 in the Bibles that we give away here. And when you're there in Titus chapter 3, drop down to verse 4. And if you're able, if you're in your living room, wherever you are, however you're watching, please stand for the reading of God's word. Titus 3, 4 begins like this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is God's word. You may be seated. And as you are, join me in prayer. God, there is so much rich truth in this passage that we've spent five weeks looking at it. And and, and, and verse seven is no different. You use the apostle Paul to pack so much truth into such a small space that it's gonna take me a while to, to get it all out, and it has been taking me a while. But God, thank you for the way that you've been using this passage Thank you for the way that you've been blessing these truths to the the hearts and lives of those who are watching. And I pray that you would do it again. I pray that you would be gracious. I pray that you would be kind to all of us who are watching, that you would use this text to open our eyes to the truths that you want us to know, so that we will walk with you closer, so that we will love you more dearly, so that we'll, we'll cherish you, and that we will live lives that show just how wonderful you are. I don't want that just for us who are watching this broadcast. I, I also want to lift up to you First Baptist of Chandler. I want to lift up to you Dr. Paul Smith, their pastor. Please bless him as he's going to be preaching this weekend, as, you're, as he's, his message is going to go out to, to the people of his church. Father, use his message powerfully to make an impact on them, not just in the moment, but an impact that will last for, for decades as you bless that church and use that church in the city of Chandler. Father, bless them, care for them th- during this difficult time. Use them, to advance your truth through the ministry of that church in a powerful way. Use them to see people saved. Use them to see people grow, just like you've been doing here. God, do the same exact thing there that you've been doing here, please. And we will give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise because that's what you deserve. And I ask this, please, for the good of your people, And I ask this, please, for the glory of your name. Amen. Question for you. What if you could be transported to the future? And I don't mean mean just, just a little bit into the future. I mean the distant future. I mean past the rapture, past the tribulation, past the millennium. What if you could be transported to the new heavens and the new earth? What if you could be transported to the eternal state? You'd experience Eden restored. No crying, no pain, no regrets, no sickness, no sin, none of the effects of sin anywhere. You'd experience what it's like to live with God in His presence. You'd know him like never before. You'd live with him. You'd live for him with perfect satisfaction. You'd worship him with a depth and a strength and and a satisfaction unlike anything that we can even get close to now. You'd experience life in the new Jerusalem, a a 1,500-mile-by-1,500-mile-by-1,500-mile cube hovering above the new earth where all the people of God for all time will dwell. We don't know much about that place, but if we look at what God did in the first creation, whatever he has planned for the future must be at least as good as it is now, right? But probably, most likely, like infinitely better than what we see now in creation. What if you could be transported to that future for just one minute? Do you think that when you came back, that that experience would change you? Do you think it would change the way that you live? Do you think it would would change what you worry about? Do you think it would change what you spend your time on? Do you think it would change how how much you stress about the things in this life? Well, the likelihood of being transported to the eternal state is uh, pretty small, like nothing. However, what if we lived like that experience was guaranteed for us anyway? The Bible says, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, this light and momentary affliction, the things that we are afflicted with in this world, it is light, it is momentary, and it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, as we focus, as we fix our eyes, not on the things that are seen, that's not what we're focused on, but to the things that are unseen. Unseen. Why? Because the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. They they mean nothing ultimately. But the things that are unseen, those things are eternal. What if we just took the Bible seriously and lived like this future that I've been talking about was as sure to happen as the sun coming up tomorrow? Because listen, it is. Our text today, Titus 3, 7, can help us do that. This text completes the sentence that began in Titus 3, 4, and it concludes by helping us understand what people are saved for. What is it that people are saved to? What is it that they are saved to enjoy? What is the purpose? What is the result? What is God's intended goal for salvation? Where is this whole thing headed? What did God save you for? What did he save you to enjoy? What did he save you to experience? What did he save you to be? This will be our fifth and final uh, message explaining this Mount Everest of a sentence. Every phrase in this sentence revolves around the words that begin verse five, he saved us. Salvation is kind of the umbrella and and all the details are underneath it, explaining what it means to be saved. Many of you have told me how much you've appreciated going slowly through this text, how helpful it's been, uh, hearing all that God has done to save us. We we did that first by answering the question, why are people saved? And that's in verse 4. People are saved because God is kind. People are saved because God is compassionate. We've also answered the question, what is it that saves people? That's verse 5 too. Our, our good works, even our very best works, are not what saves us. God saves us, and he sa- he's the one that saves us, and he does it because, verse 5, he's merciful. Third, we took a deep dive into answering the question, how is it that people are saved? That's verses five and six. No one is saved without the Spirit's work of regeneration. This this happens. This is something that happens to spiritually dead sinners who are made alive. They're born again. They're born of God, born from above, new creations. Then they trust in Jesus as their Savior, surrender to him as their Lord. Well, the question is what happens next? What is the goal of the why and the what and the how of salvation? What is the direction that all of that is headed in? Look at verse five. He saved us. Now drop down to verse seven. He saved us so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I'm gonna break this passage down phrase by phrase. I don't want you to miss a single thing what, God's, what, what God saves people for is so rich and it is so freeing and it is so joy inducing that the best thing for us is for me to try to squeeze every last ounce of truth out of verse seven. And so that's what I'm going to try to do. My only disclaimer for this message is this. It's going to have some technical Bible nerdy words that we don't use all the time, but, but fear not. I am going to define them all for you so that you're not going to get lost in the definition of these words that we don't use are truths that if they break onto your soul will totally radically transform what you think it is to be a Christian. God saves us according to his mercy by the spirit's regeneration. The first effect of regeneration is faith. It's trust in Christ. And that leads to verse seven. Notice the text. It leads to justification. Justification. Generation, uh, regeneration, conversion, faith, repentance, all of that happens instantaneously. But logically and in our texts, notice regeneration comes before justification. But every text about justification in the New Testament says justification comes after believing. So when we put the Bible together like we did last time, it's regeneration, faith, justification, So what we see here is an an outcome. It's a purpose. One of the goals of regeneration is, is namely justification. And I want you to see that justification here is not a process. It is a completed action. Saved people are justified people. Also notice it says being justified, meaning justification happens to a person. No one, in other words, justifies themselves. Justification, like regeneration, is something that happens to a person. In other words, God by himself justifies, which is why Paul says what? Look at verse 7. People are, quote, justified by his grace. It is the grace of God expressed through Jesus in verse 6 that justifies. So if we're going to understand what people are saved for, we must first, point number one, grasp the meaning of justification. Grasp the meaning of justification. What does it mean for people to be justified? What does this word mean? Maybe you've heard that justified means uh, just as if I'd never sinned. That's clever. That's not all that means. This word justification comes from the language of law courts, from legal proceedings. Charges are brought against the defendant. The arguments are are made and the the evidence is weighed. And justification then would be the, the judge's verdict of acquittal. It is the opposite, justification is, of condemnation. It is a life compared to the law and there is no charge that is able to be brought against the the defendant. He is innocent of all charges because here's the law and here's his life and there is no contradiction. The charges against him are dropped because he didn't break any law at all. The judge has no obligation to punish because no crime was committed. The judge is obligated to let him go because he is right compared to the law. The judge doesn't make the defendant innocent. A judge can't make him right comparing the defendant's life to the law. The the judge doesn't make the defendant right. By his own actions, the defendant is either innocent or guilty. The judge simply declares what is true. Well, that declaration of acquitted, not guilty, righteous. That declaration is what it means to be justified. Well, is there anyone watching this who is right after comparing your life to God's law? Are the charges against you false? Does the evidence show that you've never broken a single one of God's laws? By your actions alone, will you be found innocent, uh, acquitted of all charges? Is is there anybody watching? No. We are, verse 3, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. With that rap sheet, no one is going to be acquitted. No one is innocent. As such, as not innocent people, we are guilty. Guilty would be the correct verdict. The sentence of condemnation would be accurate, would be right. And punishment would be deserved. Punishment would be inevitable. We need God to find us innocent. We, we must be right compared to his law or we are in big trouble We will be guilty, we will be condemned, and we will be punished eternally. So if we're going to be acquitted, if we're going to be found innocent, if the charges against us are going to be dropped, if we're going to be justified, it cannot come from us because we are a million times guilty. All the good works of a criminal cannot negate his crimes, right? Just because some guy gives millions of dollars to charity doesn't mean his murder should be ignored. That's why... Galatians 2.16 declares that people are, quote, not justified by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. If a right, if an innocent life, if a life that will pass God's the test of God's law, if that's not going to come from us, if it cannot come from us, it has to come from outside of us. Without that, judgment is, is inevitable and then at this moment jesus walks into the courtroom romans 5 9 people can quote now be justified by jesus blood which means that they will quote be saved by him by christ from the wrath to come from the sentence of condemnation from the eternal punishment for our sins he saves us from that wrath In God's courtroom, justice must be done. God is good. Everything he does is good, which includes condemning and punishing all evil, even the evil that comes out of our lives. Actually, all of the evil that comes out of our lives. In justification, the charges against us are dropped. The arguments are useless. The evidence is non-existence. The verdict is acquittal, approval, and acceptance because there's no evidence of any crimes that we've committed against God's law. The verdict is no evidence of any crime because the dependent has only loved God perfectly with all her heart and all her soul and all her mind and all her strength. And she's treated every person to the same level of treatment that she gives to herself every second of every single day to every person she's come across. Well, that's not true about us. So how can that be? How is it? How is it possible for you and I to stand in God's courtroom and hear not guilty? How is it that we can stand there and hear acquitted? uh, Case thrown out for lack of evidence. How is that possible? Because the perfect righteousness of Jesus is transferred to the sinner. His sinless perfection, listen, replaces every one of her crimes against God. She is approved, acquitted, and accepted as if Jesus' perfect life was lived by her. Remember, the judge doesn't make a defendant innocent. He can't make the defendant right when comparing his life to God's law. by, By the defendant's own action, that defendant is is innocent or guilty, this judge simply declares what is true. This one-time instantaneous declaration, the verdict of a sinner's acquittal and, and acceptance and approval, which is based not on the sinner's worth, which is based not on the sinner's works, but is based on Jesus' perfection alone. That is what justification means. And because justice must be done, The criminal rap sheet of the sinner is transferred to Jesus. That rap sheet of sin and rebellion and evil replaces his sinless perfection. And Jesus is judged and Jesus is condemned and Jesus is punished in the sinner's place as if that rap sheet was his own. So to summarize in justification, every sin is forgiven The sentence of condemnation is withdrawn, being transferred to Jesus. The gift of eternal life is given. Peace with God is established and acceptance with God is granted. Now, who does God do this for? Who are the people that get in on this? People who are trying to do their best to be really good and do the right thing? No, never, never. Romans 4, 5, God, quote, justifies the ungodly. Hear that. God justifies the ungodly. God only saves, he only acquits, he only justifies sinners. And if you ask why, why is that? The answer is Romans 3:24, people are justified by God's grace as a gift. Or Titus 3:7, justified by his grace the cause, the motivation, the reason God justifies anyone is his grace alone. That's all. We can't deserve it. We can't earn it. All we can do is enjoy it and worship God in its enjoyment. Nothing we do contributes to our justification. Now, how does God do this for us? How is it that God justifies? How are sinners like you and me guilty before God's law and and, and awaiting a certain condemnation? How in the world can I remove that from myself? How can you remove it from yourself so that you only receive his blessing? So you only receive his acceptance and you hear not guilty. How is that possible for sinners like us? Galatians 2.16, people are quote, justified. How? By faith in christ so justification comes after faith in jesus justification is god's response to faith now you might wonder like why why god chose faith as the only way sinners are justified in his sight but but think about it faith trust in jesus is the exact opposite of what when you're trusting in jesus you know who you're not trusting in you Faith in Jesus is the exact opposite of dependence on yourself for justification. Romans 3.28, people are, quote, justified by faith apart from their good works. Their, their good works are, are not even brought into the equation as to why or how they're justified. And because justification is not by works, but it's, it's by faith alone, God gets all the worship. He gets all the gratitude for the salvation alone. Listen, That he accomplishes for us. He shares his glory with no one, especially the criminals who needed the saving. One last time Titus 3 5, he saved us, not we saved us. And one last thing while justification, while this declaration of the sinner's innocence, while her rightness compared to God's law and her acceptance with God, while while all of that takes place within the second a sinner trusts in Jesus, that verdict, that same exact identical verdict is what that sinner will hear on her judgment day. It is that moment eons into the future that is brought forward in time to the moment the sinner believes. That means the verdict on your judgment day has already been rendered. That The innocence and acceptance of that day belongs to every Christian on this day and from the very day that they believed. If that's not good news for criminals against God's law and rebels, tyrants, treasonous, traitors against God himself, then there is no such thing as good news if that's not good news. Now, what people are saved for continues in the middle of Titus 3, 7. It says there, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. The ultimate purpose of salvation, the intended result of God's mercy, the Spirit's regeneration, and justification in Christ is that sinners, notice, might become heirs. Notice, like justification becoming an heir happens to people. And I mean, that makes sense, right? Nobody makes himself an heir of an estate. Somebody makes him an heir or, or he's not an heir. They, it, without somebody making a person an heir of, a, of an estate, there are no rights, there's no privilege, there's no access to that estate. The Bible word for becoming an heir is the word adoption. Adoption like regeneration, conversion, and justification, and other blessings like redemption and reconciliation. All of those things happen instantaneously. They are instantaneously applied to the sinner. Logically, one might happen before another, but chronologically, it all happens in a moment. Like I said before, within a second. Life is instant. The verdict of not guilty is instant. Adoption is instant. None of that is a process that a Christian is growing into. All of that is the state a Christian exists in now and forever. In other words... Adoption is not speaking of a future possibility. Adoption, being an heir, is a present certainty for every Christian. The most famous and admired Christian and the most humble, ignored, disregarded, anonymous Christian. It it is the same. It is the truth for all of them. All of us. So if we're going to understand what people are saved for, we must, point number two, stand in awe of adoption. If we don't stand in awe of this, we don't understand this. Marvel, stand in awe, be amazed at the truth of adoption. I did a whole message on this subject in our Galatians series. You can find it on our website. It's Galatians chapter four, verses one to seven. And in that sermon, I said that I believe that if we really get this truth of adoption, that we can experience a personal revival only eclipsed by the moment we're saved. And I still believe that a few years later. This truth, like justification, will protect you from false teaching. This truth will settle fear. This truth will make you more like Christ. Being adopted into God's family, being an an heir is is deeply profound. And I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface on this because the depths run so deep into the very heart of God. Being an heir means a person will come into possession of something. He stands in a privileged position and anticipating a future blessing because of his relationship to the one who promised the inheritance to him. The relationship to the inheritance that God's promised to those who love him. That, 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 that inheritance is established through adoption. Galatians 4, 5, Christians have, quote, received adoption. Galatians 4, 7 says of the Christian, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Translation, not through you. Again, no one adopts themselves. Someone has to adopt you. And then someone has to receive you as their own. And it is a pure gift of grace. Adoption, like justification, is not a goal for good little boys and girls. Adoption is a gift of God's love and grace for sinners that makes us sons. Justification has to do with people standing before God's law with God as their judge. Adoption has to do with people's relationship to God as their father. In adoption, Christians are given a new identity as a child of God. They experience the closeness of the Holy Spirit actually living up, taking up residence inside of them as individual little temples. They are assured of God's special love and care. He even disciplines them by, by keeping them from sin, and, and they can come to God without reservation because they've been adopted. And Romans 8:17 says, "If Christians are children through adoption, then we are heirs, heirs of God. And listen, fellow heirs with Christ. Let that sink in for a minute. If you are a Christian. You are a fellow heir with Jesus himself. He doesn't get God's best and then you get the leftovers. You get everything Jesus deserves because of justification and because of adoption. Everything Jesus deserves by right as the son of God, everything he deserves for living a life of sinless obedience for over 30 years, all of that is yours. We are called sons because he is the son. It's not sons and daughters because in the ancient world, a daughter shared the inheritance that her husband received. But in the ancient world, it was the sons who received the inheritance of the father's estate. So acceptance with God is ours today because Jesus is accepted by God. The love of God is ours today because Jesus is loved by God. Sinless perfection is ours today because Jesus is sinlessly perfect. We can just do this. Everything, all of, the, all of the blessings that Jesus has, that Jesus deserves, belong to us because we're in him. We have it all. Not because we've earned it. We, we, not because we've earned our way into the family with our good works. Not because we keep ourselves in the family by our good works. We have everything Jesus deserves by God's grace through faith in Jesus alone because God responds to faith by adopting us and giving us every single thing Jesus deserves as the unique special son of God. You are brought so close, in fact, Galatians 4, 6 says, you get to call the father by the same exact term of endearment that Jesus called him, Abba. This is a term of endearment. This is a term of family intimacy, like daddy or papa, but it's not childish. It's not trivial. Like like those terms might convey. That's not what this term Abba conveys. No, there there is a closeness. There is a reverence and an intimacy all put together in that word Abba. In fact, think about this. Jesus gives us the permission to use the title that he used for God. And that could only be Because in Christ, we have the same relationship of affection. We have the same relationship of wonder, love, and intimacy that Jesus himself has with God. It's the only reason why we could even use that term. It's because we have the same relationship with the Father that Jesus does. I told you, the truth of adoption is profound. And it can change your life. Think about the change. Think think about the difference between Titus 3.3 and Titus 3.7. From foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, malicious, envious, hated and hating. Past being nice, past being good, past regeneration, past justification, all the way into the palace as an heir. How in the world is that grand canyon of separation crossed? Who in the world could stretch across that chasm? Who alive could span that great divide from sinner to slave to son to heir? Answer, verse five. He saved us. God, the Father showed us mercy. The Son died for us and poured the Spirit out on us, raising us from the death of our trespasses and sins, giving us new life, spiritual and eternal life. He did it all. He crossed it for us. He did it all. He saved us. Now, as if that can't get any better, what people are saved for culminates in the conclusion of verse 7. Justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. From becoming co-heir with Jesus of everything he deserves, we are awaiting the reception of our inheritance which is verse 7 called the hope of eternal life. We are heirs of a heavenly estate full of the blessings that the Son of God deserves. He deserves it because of who he is. He deserves it because of what he's done. But that estate belongs equally to us because we are in him. This is the goal. This is the reason. This is the anticipated result of he saved us. Even though the status of heir is already ours as Christians, receiving our inheritance as God's adopted kids belongs exclusively to our future. In this week, notice, quote, we hope, which is not wishing. The word means a patiently anticipated certainty. It's not optimism. It's settled, established trust that awaits us. Not because of who we are, what we've done, but because of everything God has done to save us. There is no question that this is the Christian's future because of mercy, regeneration, justification, and adoption. The inheritance belongs to us. Now we are simply waiting the certain future when we receive it. This inheritance you can see in verse seven that we are waiting for is called here eternal life. Elsewhere, the New Testament says Christians are heirs of God's promises. Elsewhere, it says that Christians are heirs of the kingdom. Like I said earlier, we're we're heirs of everything Jesus deserves, which in theology speak is uh, is wrapped up in the word glorification. That is the goal. That is the end of our salvation. So if we're going to understand what people are saved for, we must, quote, we must, point number three, be certain of glorification. Be certain of glorification. Glorification, eternal life, notice, is hoped for. But hoping again is not wishing. Hoping in the New Testament is certainty. Glorification is a settled outcome, simply waiting patiently to be realized. This is the end of God's unbroken chain of salvation. Romans 8, 30, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified past tense because your future is a settled reality now if you are in Christ. Philippians 1.6, what he started in our salvation, he will bring to completion. This is when, in the words of 2 Thessalonians 2.14, Christians, quote, share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? No, you can't. It's impossible to imagine that. This is Colossians 1.5, the hope stored up for us in heaven. This is 1 Corinthians 2, 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of of anybody imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Glorification is when faith becomes sight, when promise becomes fulfillment. It happens either at death or the rapture where we will see Jesus face to face. Where we, we have the very presence of sin removed forever, we experience eternal life and we experience perfect conformity to Christ. We'll be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ and be that way forever. First John 3:2, "We will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. If the penalty of sin is dealt with in justification, if the power of sin is being dealt with in sanctification. Glorification eradicates the very presence of sin. It is removed once and for all, never to be seen again, never to be heard again, never to be experienced again, ever, ever again. Glorification is the triumphant conclusion of all God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has done to save us. This is the goal. It is God's desired result for all he saves. And listen, it is not just his desired result. It is your assured, certain, fixed, not cannot be stopped result if you are in Christ. Listen, if, if all of that is true, if everything we've looked at in the last five weeks is true, then the only question that matters is the question you should be asking now. Am I certain that that will be my future? Is there evidence that I've received God's mercy? Is there proof that I've been born again? Is there tangible, real things that I see in my life that shows that Jesus died for me and that the Spirit's living, living producing his fruit coming out of my life? If not, if you can't say that with certainty, leave leave your good works behind. Leave the lie that you're a good person behind. Surrender your rebellion against God and come to Jesus. We saw it already. He justifies the ungodly. He came to call sinners to himself. He will take the burden of your sin and give you rest. Come to him. He will trade it. He will trade your sin for his life without guilt, life without shame. No matter what you've done or what's been done to you, he will accept you. Come to him. He is a friend of sinners. Religious people were and are repulsed by sinners. Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus drank with sinners. He shows mercy to sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came into the world to save sinners. So come to him. Believe in him. Trust in him. You can do nothing at all. He did everything you need to be saved, for, uh, uh, saved from everything that you deserve for all of your sins. Do not harden your hearts. Do not distract yourself in this moment. Come to him today. Come to him now. And if that's you, please, please email me. Info at RedeemerAZ.org. I wanna help you. I wanna talk to you. Please email me. Info at RedeemerAZ.org. And Christian, since all of this is true for you, since you are justified, since you are adopted, since you are certain to be glorified, that should change your life. Nobody loves and wants to live in the airport when they're on their way to Hawaii. That's what this world is to us, a short stop that we are passing through on the way to eternity. This picture that I've tried to paint from verse seven of the life to come this future existence that is assured for us as assured as the sun coming up tomorrow should impact every part of our lives it should impact what you think is important it should impact how we spend our money it should impact how we invest our time and what we invest our time in Jesus said lay up for yourselves treasures where in heaven hoard rewards in heaven invest in people, invest in activities that will pay eternal dividends. No one will remember most of the garbage that we waste our time on here. All the, the stuff that we consume and that we, we think about and talk about and care about. We won't even, it, it will all melt away when we see Jesus. All of it. That should change how you invest yourself in, in the events of this world. It should change how you treat these people. Based on being caught up in this life. If you're caught up in the next life and you interact with other Christians like on social media. The, the family resemblance, the way he's, uh, God is my father. God is her father. God is his father. I'm going to treat them like a, like a brother, like a sister. All of the, our, our lives. I, uh, the, the, I could do this for, for another hour. All of the ways that our lives should change. If we really took that future day, And live like it was coming. Live like it was certain. Live like we would be there. Together. It will impact how we go through trials like this pandemic. Not angry. Not worried. But calm and confident. Because in the words of 2 Corinthians 4.17. This light and momentary affliction. Is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison to anything going on here. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. They are not worth the attention that we give so much of our lives to. The things that are unseen though, those things are eternal. Let's take the truths about what God did to save people for, what he saved people to enjoy And let's live like they are true. Let's live like they are as certain as the sun coming up tomorrow. Let's pray. God, unfortunately, we inside of ourselves are at war with the truths that we heard today. We want to embrace them. We want to live like they're true. We, we want to live like that the certain reality that is coming for us. It, like we want to bring that into today with all of our hearts right now. But there's the world that tells us to care about this life most. There's our flesh that says what we want now is far more important than some future floating in some clouds or whatever it's going to be out there. And then there's demonic forces also working against this but your spirit lives within us your grace like we saw in chapter two is training us to live upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for the blessed hope and so please use these truths and and shape us just a little more shape the way we think shape the way that we live with these truths just a little bit less of us a little bit less of the world and a lot more of Christ Do this, please, I pray in his name, amen.